Well, ladies and gentlemen, if I may have your attention, please. Uh, since all of you have uh, gotten exactly what you deserve and your just desserts, uh, we're now uh, at the stage of having a very special treat. It's a, a pleasure to introduce uh, a colleague from the Cato Institute, and again, for all the younger people here. She started as an intern at the Cato Institute, so always keep that in mind, that internships can lead to really great things. Gabriela Calderon is the editor of elcato.org, which is the Spanish language uh, platform of the Cato Institute, and it's more than just a website. It's a syndication system for articles and studies. They're involved in translating and publishing books in Spanish, commissioning works in Spanish, and are having a very, very substantial impact. And there's El Cato University as well, which she and our other uh, Spanish-speaking colleagues organize, or as I like to refer to them, they're the people who speak the secret language at Cato, <coughs> because there are so many of them. And they do El Cato University very much like this in Venezuela, in Chile, and other countries. Gabriela is a journalist, she's a writer, regular newspaper columnist, and I should point out she is a ferocious and fearless campaigner for liberty, not afraid of anybody, but the politicians are afraid of her. And you'll find out why in a moment. Well, I'm, I'm going to talk tonight about uh, something that I find, uh, I think it's sort of one of the best kept secrets of Latin America, and it is that there is, in fact, a liberal tradition in Latin America. And I mean, it's hidden, and you might not uh, catch it, uh, because a lot of the news that comes out of Latin America is heavily taken over by uh, men that are inclined to speaking with birds, like the Venezuelan president right now, or or <laughs> other uh, drug-related violence incidents and, and, and other type of, of political repression. Uh, and, and so you don't get to, uh, I mean, when you think about Latin America, you don't think about classical liberalism or you think that maybe there isn't uh, tradition there. But there is, and uh, unfortunately it's not the, uh, the tradition that... Uh, predominates and or, or that has predominated uh, throughout the history of the Latin American Republic since their independence. But uh, tonight I would like to just introduce you to that tradition because I think if, if Latin Americans are, uh, are going to develop, it's if they have their, uh, their heroes on the classical liberal side because a lot of the times you see in Latin America the young uh, look up to uh, their idols such as uh, Che Guevara, and, and other uh, types of uh, poets of uh, socialist inclinations. And it's, uh, it's also because they don't know something else. They don't know there is an alternative. And a lot of the time, classical liberals trying to promote these ideas in Latin America uh, are hard-pressed to, to, to publish these thinkers because a lot of times they're quick to quote uh, the American founding fathers. And that doesn't have a lot of traction with the Latin American audience because then they say you're quoting the founding fathers in the United States. You know, how is that relevant to Venezuela or 
or Ecuador. And, you know, we as libertarians, we might understand it, but people from other cultures might not. So that's why I think it's very important to rescue this liberal tradition that, that is there. So um, first I would like to start by saying that uh, at the time of independence, the Spanish colonies, when they became independent, that almost all of them adopted uh, liberal constitutions. That is, the model that they chose uh, as a form of political organization was the liberal republic. And this is because they were heavily influenced by the likes of Benjamin Constant. And actually, Benjamin Constant's book, which uh, somewhat translates into English as a, a political course, he had a book in, in French, it was called Courts de Politique. I don't know if my pronunciation is right, but this book was translated into Spanish. And a lot of the independence leaders in Latin America, they read this book as a guide to write constitutions. And so that's how uh, around uh, 20 constitutions were written at the time of the independence of the Spanish-American colonies. And they were inspired in classical liberal ideas of Benjamin Constant. However, there was also, I mean, we have to recognize there was also a very heavy influence of Jeremy Bentham. And, and especially his utilitarianism, not his defense of usury. <laughs> I think you would find interesting what some of the founding fathers said of the young uh, Latin American republics. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, for example, in 1813, in a letter to Alexander von Humboldt, he said, history, I believe, furnishes no example of a priest-ridden people maintaining a free civil government. Mexico, where we learn from you that men of science are not wanting, uh, may revolutionize itself under better auspices than the southern provinces. These last, I fear, must end in military despotism. That's what Jefferson said in 1813. And then John Adams said about the possibility of establishing democracy in France or in what was known as New Spain. He said, these are schemes as absurd as similar plans to establish democracies among the birds, beasts, and fishes. That's what John Adams had to say. So they were very skeptical about the prospects of the young Latin American republics. Nonetheless, uh, nonetheless, uh, it, it was interesting to see how these new constitutions, they all talked about natural rights, separation of powers, and even in comparative politics studies at the time, uh, it's peculiar how uh, the young Latin American republics established modern forms of selecting uh, public authorities. So there were uh, elections uh, that were more inclusive there uh, prior to uh, other parts in, than in other parts of the developed world. And also another interesting fact is that the term liberalism, the word liberal, was first used as a in the political sense at the Spanish Cortes Generales in Cádiz. The Cortes Generales of Cádiz were a liberal uh, revolutionary Spanish parliament, and they even drafted a liberal constitution in 1812, which is known as La Pepa, because it was uh, signed on the day of St. Joseph in Spain. And Josephs are called Pepes, so the constitution is known as La Pepa. And a lot of uh, the people that approved that constitution, there were 182 congressmen at that parliament, 50 of them came from the Indies, 49 of them came from Hispanic America. So you have 49 representatives of the colonies voting in favor of a very classical liberal constitution in 1812. Of course, that didn't last very long, uh, but that's at that parliament, there was a division between liberals and conservatives, and that's the first time that the word liberal was used, in the, like I said, in the political sense. 
Now, the, like I said, there was some constructivism because they thought that the Constitution was going to solve all problems. And a uh, famous Mexican historian, uh, Reyes Heroles, he calls this period the constitutional euphoria period. And although 200 years have, have passed since then, we are reliving that time because there appears to be a constitutional euphoria in many Latin American countries today. Fortunately, it's a minority, not a majority of them. But we see new constitutions recently drafted in Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador. They were thinking about it in Honduras until he was, uh, he was removed from power. And they were thinking about it in Paraguay too, but he was also, that guy was also removed from power. But now I would like to speak to you about uh, the Latin American liberal thinkers, leaders, writers, because a lot of people don't, uh, don't see this liberal tradition in Latin America. And it starts at the time of independence. And I would like to first start with Francisco de Miranda. A lot of people know about Simón Bolívar, the leader of independence in South America, but not, I don't think as many people know about Francisco de Miranda. And Francisco de Miranda, he was born in 1750. He's known for having said, we don't seek to replace an old tyranny with another new one. And that's very different than uh, Simón Bolívar, because Simón Bolívar understood liberty in the old Spanish sense. You know, the Spaniards believed in liberty as liberty from the French, but not as liberty of individuals from their own government. But uh, Francisco de Miranda, he understood that difference. And uh, he traveled around Europe, the United States. He even spent some time in Russia. He had friendships with Thomas Paine, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill. And he had read the authors of the Scottish School, especially Adam Smith and David Hume. He had also read Locke, Montesquieu, and Voltaire. He was a very interesting guy because, you know, he fought in the American Revolution. He fought in the French Revolution. His name is even engraved in the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. You can Google that and you can see the his name right there. And um, then he, uh, he was there during the terror, at which time he was imprisoned. And uh, then he went back to Venezuela. Uh, his vision of government is evident in a letter he wrote in uh, 1797 to his friend Thomas Paine. He said, the conservation of natural rights and above all, of the liberty of the people, followed by their properties, is undoubtedly the fundamental cornerstone of every human society, whatever political form it is organized under. He founded the Patriotic Society in, in Venezuela to disseminate the principles of liberty. And he was so good as a public speaker and, and so distinguished and so knowledgeable. And he was becoming almost too famous. And this made Simon Bolivar somewhat jealous and uncomfortable. And this is a famous incident in Venezuelan history. Uh, basically, Bolivar turned him in to the Spaniards to get rid of him, and Francisco de Miranda died in a prison in Cadiz, in Spain. That's the first guy that I wanted to talk about. But then the next guy, I think, is one of the... I don't think you can find a more coherently liberal figure in Latin America during the, time, the, during the first century of independence, and that would be Juan Bautista Alberdi from Argentina. So Alberti was very much an Anglo-Saxon uh, admirer. He was very much an admirer of the American Revolution over the French Revolution. Uh, he's considered the father of the classical liberal constitution of 1853, which is the constitution that Argentina still has even today, although this constitution has been gutted and you know, reformed and amended so many times that it's almost unrecognizable. Uh, he's uh, one of the best known from the generation of 
the th it, it was known as the Generation of the 37. It was an intellectual movement of university students who debated politics and philosophy. And he was an opponent to the dictator at the time in his country, who was Juan Manuel de Rosas. He was going to college, he wanted to be a lawyer, and he never got, uh, he finished all his courses, and, and he, was, he was really good at school, and he was going to graduate, but he never got his title because he refused to swear allegiance to Rosas, which was a requirement to get your title as a lawyer in the Republic of Argentina at that time. So then he, he had to flee, he, was, he lived in exile in Uruguay, Europe, and Chile. After Rosas, that dictator, was overthrown, he wrote his major book, Bases and Starting Points for the Argentine Republic. And this was a decisive influence on the Argentinian Constitution of 1853. Many historians and many uh, econo economists argue that that constitution was responsible for the amazing prosperity that Argentina had between, uh, after, after the 1900s. It, it, the economy just grew amazingly. It actually rivaled, at some point, the United States in terms of development. He died in 1884, alone in a hotel in, in Paris, uh, but uh, his influence is, is important even today because he's one of the few uh, Latin American, uh, how shall we put it, uh, founding fathers of the new modern republics. He's one of the few that not only favored a republican system where you have a division of powers, but he also favored economic liberty. And if you read his works, he, he says it explicitly. He says that uh, the Argentine constitution is different because it's the only one in Latin America that defends economic liberty. And then he, he was clearer than a lot of economists from today on the issue of redistribution. He said, uh, uh, he said on the issue of production and distribution, he said, what assistance does the producer request from the law in the distributions of profits? The same as for production. The fullest liberty of man, the abstention of the law in regulating the profit, obeying in its distribution the justice accorded freely by the will of each man. So, uh, you know, he was clearer on redistribution than some current economists. And um, contrary to the popular notion in many Latin American societies, he was also clear about something very important. He didn't confuse the wealth or the welfare of the state with the welfare of the people. It, this might sound uh, like something pretty evident to an American audience, but this is not so evident for a Latin American audience because that sometimes it's confused. And so he said, the Argentine constitution is the first to distinguish the wealth of the nation from the wealth of the government. And then he foresaw what was to happen with the Argentine constitution of 1853, because he wrote a book uh, called The, uh, the Economic and Rentistic uh, of Structure of the Argentine Confederation. And there he said, the economic liberties are granted in accordance with the laws that regulate their exercise. This provision leaves in the hands of the legislator, formerly a Spanish colonist, the great danger of repealing the constitution with regulations. And you can see that sort of happened in the US or it's starting to happen in the US to a greater extent. So you can see some parallels into, in, in with what happened in Argentina and what might happen with the US. Um, 
it's sad that nowadays he's barely known or read outside Argentina or even within Argentina. In fact, Cato adjunct scholar Martin Krause, he, has, uh, he teaches uh, economic thoughts, uh, an economic thoughts course at the University of Buenos Aires. And he uh, had a very revealing uh, blog post a few weeks ago where he quotes his students who were dumbfounded, who were very surprised to read Alberti's works. And some, one of them said, I'm surprised that the structure of the Argentine Republic, its national constitution, were built upon the foundation of economic liberalism. The basis of our legal structure had been built upon Adam's, Adam Smith's concept of liberalism, a whole constitution in the defense and promotion of liberty as an essential principle for all created wealth. And then another student said, one of the points in Alberti's text that I found interesting was the consideration of commerce as a motor for the creation of wealth. They're surprised because they have never read about this. They don't even, they're clueless that it's even in, that, that's what inspired their constitution, their current constitution, which is, I mean, interpreted in a very different way today, granted, but they don't know about this part of their history. And it, it's sad because, you know, if, if they knew, then they would probably have a different interpretation of what's going on today. Another uh, important thinker is Bartolomé Mitre. Uh, he was born in 1821. He was also an, uh, an opponent of the Juan Manuel de Rosa's dictatorship. He had to live in exile. He lived in Bolivia, Uruguay, and Chile. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a very, uh, uh, I think it's a very nice uh, defense of trade that he has, and it's in a book that Liberty Fund published recently called Liberalism in Argentina. There he, uh, you can see his trade on speech, which he delivered uh, in 1869 at the Buenos Aires Chamber of Commerce. And he said that trade is a job and a fertile job that civilizes, enriches, and improves the human condition, participating with the dual nature of material power and moral greatness that makes it more worthy of admiration and respect. Then he said, uh, he recognized that, you know, wealth and capital are the result of work. And he said, if the day these things become gratis, we would start to consume created capital without replacing it with new work and new creation, without accumulating savings until all the created and accumulated capital were consumed, the fountain of life drunk dry, movement paralyzed, and man transformed back into that sort of beast in a primitive state that was civilized by the division of labor. Now we can see in, in this a short passage that I'm quoting that he was heavily influenced by Adam Smith's moral defense of trade. And, and there, then he also says that man owes the gifts and prosperity to uninterrupted labor and now dominates creation and governs himself only because he buys and sells that is because he has an intrinsic value and because he gives value to things. Now that is very classic, that, that's a very liberal thing to say in Argentina. I think it would be political suicide for any Argentinian politician to say that today in Argentina. <laughs> and Bartolomé Mitre managed to become president of Argentina after, after saying things like that. Uh, he concluded, by the way, he concluded that speech saying, I raise my glass to the moral and material greatness of trade, to its fertile and peaceful triumphs. Another great guy that is actually not a Latin American, but had a great and salutary influence in Latin America is the French economist Jean-Gustave Courcel-Senuil. He was born and raised in France, but he came to Chile after being hired as an economics professor for the recently created Universidad de Chile. And he was also hired as an advisor to the Ministry of Finance. 
When he arrived in Chile in 1855, uh, he started teaching an economics course, you know, and, and he left eight years later. But what, uh, what an amazing effect he had in just eight years, because nowadays he's considered the most influential liberal economist in Chile during the 19th, during the 19th century. And, uh, for example, a distinguished Chilean historian, Diego Barros Arana, said of Corcel Senuil, his explanations were perfectly calculated to develop in the young the spirit of observation and to discard the learning from memorization to which they were still condemned in most of their studies. He promoted the liberalization of trade. He was an advocate of free banking. Uh, and then he went back to France, where he wrote theoretical and practical treaty on political economy, which was immediately translated into Spanish and was required reading at many colleges in Chile. So Chile was swayed by his influence. And during the beginning of the 20th century, Chile had very market liberal policies. It was only in the second half of that century that things changed until they ended up with Allende and, and other things, but it, it, it had a good start and it was a prosperous country before that. Then we have uh, someone that Tom mentioned earlier from Brazil, Joaquim Nabucco. Uh, his, best, uh, his most known work is O Abolicionismo, and Tom quoted from that work earlier today. Uh, he's the Brazilian and uh, the, the leader of the abolitionist movement in Brazil, and he founded the Brazilian Anti-Slavery Society, where he promoted the abolition of slavery, which he also did as a member of the Chamber of Deputies. In, in that uh, quote that Tom had earlier, there was a last part where he says, the abolitionists include all those who believe in Brazil without slaves, all those who anticipate the miracles of free labor, all those who suffer slaver, slavery as a detested vassalage imposed upon the entire nation by some in the interest of some. And now we're getting closer to the present. And uh, this guy, you know, very little is said about him with regards to politics uh, and even less with regard to political philosophy. But he's a literary giant, even though he didn't get the Nobel Prize, which he should have. And this is uh, Jorge Luis Borges, again, another Argentinian. And it's very interesting because, you know, um, Borges uh, is very evident from a few of his works, according to Cato adjunct scholar Martin Krause, that he, he couldn't prove or he couldn't argue to himself how it was that free will existed but he also could not deny that it existed. So giving the benefit of the doubt to the fact that free will exists, he said, I think humans, I really believe humans have the capacity to act freely. And this led him to a, methodolo a methodological individualism. So he was always, and this is a recurrent theme in his interviews, in his public appearances, in different works, he was always questioning notion of the mass, the society, the nation, the working class. Along these lines, he said, the mass is a fictitious entity. What really exists is the individual. I believe that only individuals exist. Everything else, nationalities and social classes, are mere intellectual conveniences. He is also very anti-nationalist. And in Argentina, you know that that's not very popular. You know, the Argentinas, they have a very high opinion of themselves. <laughs> but, <laughs> And he said, he was known to say things that were, would be very annoying to some Argentinians. He would say, I'm a cosmopolitan who crosses national frontiers because he dislikes them. 
his strong individualism led him to a profound distrust of the state. He's known to have said, the most urgent problem of our time, already denounced with prophetic lucidness by the almost forgotten Spencer, is a gradual intrusion of the state into the acts of the individual. Alejandra Salinas, uh, she's the director of research at SEADE University in Buenos Aires. Uh, she wrote a very interesting study uh, on Borges's political philosophy, and she sums it up this way. The political philosophy latent in Borges' works rests on a belief in a self-sufficient individual, the preeminence of liberty, a distrust of government, and nostalgia for anarchy understood as a self-organized order. So, in Borges, he was not an explicit outright defender of libertarianism or of liberty because he was mostly focused on literature and he thought that politics and literature had to be clearly divided, that he couldn't let art be influenced by his, by his political views. But you can clearly see a very strong individualism and very strong tendency to distrust the state in Jorge Luis Borges. Also in his little short story, Torre de Babel, the Babel Tower, you can sort of find a metaphor for uh, Hayek's, uh, Hayek's explanation of how the market serves to accelerate the process of trial and error. And, and it's very interesting, there's actually, uh, the Legatum Institute published an essay by, uh, I think it's Zachary Cáceres, his name from the University Francisco Marroquín, and he uh, relates the, the Babel, the tower, the library of Babel with, uh, Hayek's thesis. Another important Latin American thinker and writer and poet, and this poet was on our side, so <laughs> that's very particular because most poets in Latin America are like Pablo Neruda, who died uh, thinking that Joseph Stalin was great. You know? And so he, this one, Octavio Paz, he was a Mexican uh, diplomat. He got the Literature Nobel Prize in 1990, and after being seduced by communism during his youth, he came to criticize totalitarianism in general during the 1950s, especially directing his criticisms toward Joseph Stalin. He became a diplomat because Chilean poet Pablo Neruda had recommended the office to him. Had, I mean, Pablo Neruda told him, you should be a diplomat, because then you'll have resources and time to dedicate yourself to writing poetry. I thought that was an interesting anecdote. But uh, he served the Mexican foreign ministry of under the PRI, which uh, Mario Vargas Llosa called the perfect dictatorship. You know, they seemed like they were not a dictatorship, but they were for a very long time. Um, and when he quit in 1968, he did it in dissent for the repression of the student protests in the Plaza de Tlatelolco. That's even hard to pronounce for us that speak Spanish. but. Uh, this was in Mexico City, and then he quit in dissent because of that. His description of the state was the philanthropic ogre, and that has become a, a very uh, cliche, omnipresent uh, description of the state in Latin America pop culture. Uh, Mexican historian Enrique Krause says that for the Marxist universe, Octavio Paz was the great heretic. His most frequent accusation against the left was that of intellectual sterility. He accused the left of a moral double standard, justifiably indignant and saddened by the crimes of Latin American right-wing dictatorships in Brazil, Argentina, and Chile, but inexplicably silent before conditions and events in Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, Cuba, or Albania. In his famous work, The Labyrinth of Solitude, he says something that I think rings true with most Latin Americans. He says, the political lie was established in our peoples almost constitutionally. 
The moral damage has been incalculable and reaches very profound areas of our being. We move naturally among lies. This is why the fight against the official and constitutional lie must be the first step of every serious attempt at reform. Then another important guy is Venezuelan Carlos Rangel. He's probably the most, uh, he's probably written the most interesting, complete, and and I think right to the point, a book on contemporary Latin American history. You can find this book in English under the name The Latin Americans, Their Love-Hate Relationship with the United States, but I think the name in Spanish was better. And it translates, it translates as From Noble Savage to Good Revolutionary. And when he was writing this book, uh, which was prologued by Jean-Francois Revelle, his good friend, uh, Jean-Francois Revel uh, tells on the prologue that Rangel, Carlos Rangel explained to him that with this book he intended to perform the task of demystifying. Uh, he said that um, also Revel says that he learned from Carlos Rangel that Latin America's economic underdevelopment was a consequence of its political underdevelopment. Also, uh, I mean, I can summarize some of the myths that Rangel destroys in his books, starting with the myth that what the Spanish conquistadors found in America was paradise on earth. And that's a very common myth. Uh, they did not find paradise on earth. And this myth, this myth implies an anti-Western rejection of the concept of civilization, because what came afterwards was something close to civilization. And one of the most important themes in Rangel's works is that he insists that Latin Americans are part of the West, despite its uh, pre-Spanish conquest civilizations. Another myth he dispelled is that of American imperialism as a culprit for Latin America's failure to progress. You know, Rangel explained that the best lies are the ones that have some grain of truth in them. And so it is true that there was American, uh, that the US governments, different US governments intervene in Latin America and that did some damage, but it is, not true that most of the things that are wrong or that still go wrong in Latin America are the fault of US interventionism in the region. A lot of what goes on in Latin America is the fault of domestic policies. I mean, our, our own government's fault. And long before anybody knew or thought about someone as peculiar as Hugo Chavez, Rangel said in a prophetic speech at the Chamber of Commerce in Caracas in 1983, he said, from very far comes this status interventionist passion of the Venezuelan government and also the custom that public office serves as a means to become rich. But along the way, those two traditions have, aggravated, have been aggravated monstrously by two new factors, socialism and oil. And that's what you have today in Venezuela, you know, to an extreme. And I'd like to end with somebody that's very active today promoting the ideas of liberty in the region, and he gets a lot of press because luckily in 2010, he got the Nobel Prize, the Literature Nobel Prize, and this is a friend of the Institute, Mario Vargas Llosa. Uh, he is today one of the most outspoken and well-known defenders of classical liberalism, and he's very explicit about it. I've heard him more than once say that, his, uh, that he considers three writers as the most influential in his political philosophy, and he always quotes Isaiah Berlin, F.A. Hayek, and Karl Popper. And you know, you don't get many people in the Latin American landscape citing Hayek or, 
or even uh, Isaiah Berlin or Popper. And he made a strong criticism of collectivism. It's a very elegant criticism in his novel, The War of the End of the World. He showed how collectivism can lead to a collective hysteria. In The Feast of the Goat, he portrayed an extreme example of the typical Latin American caudillo in what is a very riveting account of Rafael Leonidas Trujillo's reign over the Dominican Republic. It's a very entertaining book. There's also a movie on it. The movie's not so good, but the book is really entertaining. And um, his weekly column at El País, uh, the major newspaper in Spain and probably the most widely read paper in the Spanish language in the world, uh, it's, it is always uh, interpreting current affairs from a classical liberal point of view, and it's reproduced in newspapers around Latin American region. He ran for president of his home country in Peru in an on an explicitly liberal mar market liberal platform, and uh, though that was sort of political suicide because he did not win and he was beat by Alberto Fujimori who became president and then he became dictator. Um, the, the nice thing about his campaign and his brief incursion in politics is that when Fujimori got into power, he basically adopted all of Mario Vargas Llosa's reform proposals. And these economic reform proposals are what paved the way for the Peru of today, which is one of the most dynamic economies in the Latin American region. And so there are some, uh, there's an interesting uh, the liberal tradition in Latin America. Sadly, it's not uh, very well known and it's not even within Latin America. And so I think that has a lot to do. And, and I think uh, authoritarian governments, they try their best to keep them out of the history books or to keep them out of the college, uh, the, the curriculums in college. And I think it's uh, necessary uh, if uh, the next generations have a chance of changing course to rescue these types of thinkers and writers, because there are many of them. I actually had, I had a hard time choosing just nine for the presentation, because I just talked about nine of them. But uh, there is a liberal tradition, and it's very dangerous because what you see in the likes of uh, Nicolás Maduro, Evo Morales, and Rafael Correa is sort of a rejection of uh, Latin America being part of the West. And they talk about uh, this uh, pre-Columbian, pre uh, Incan and Mayan civilizations as if they were paradise on earth. And it's all part of the myths that uh, some of these writers dealt with very early on, such as Juan Bautista Alberdi or Rangel during the 70s. And, and so I think it's, it's important if we're going to uh, win the battle of liberty in Latin America to rescue these figures. So thank you very much. I don't know if you have any questions. Uh, hi, Gabriela. Good evening. Just out of curiosity, I was wondering if you know of any Central American liberal thinkers or female? I, I was trying really hard to find females, not specifically people from certain countries, uh, but uh, it's very, uh, I, I wasn't, I didn't have luck uh, so far finding females that were uh, consistently or that could be classified as classical liberal. And the problem with uh, class, a lot of uh, seemingly classical liberal figures in Latin America is that a lot of them were very heavily influenced by Jeremy Bentham and the utilitarianist arguments. And that led them astray on a lot of issues. 
So, so you have, uh, for example, figures like Benito Juarez from Mexico, who might sound liberal on some issues, but might not on others. And, and in fact, when he was in power it, for a while, he, was, he became a dictator too, so that kind of like throws him off the category. <laughs> but no, I, to answer your question specifically, I, I, I'm, I, I wouldn't know about Central American leaders specifically. Hi, um, I really like that you mentioned that um, Yosa and um, Borges have been so influential in the movement in Latin America. Um, and I was just wondering what you think about libertarian investment in the culture and arts in the United States, because it seems as though this has been um, a territory that's been completely ceded to the left. I mean, every single major um, culture and arts publication in the United States is, is really far left, like the New York Review of Books and um, the New Yorker. And um, I mean, you just you never really hear libertarians talking about any novel except for Atlas Shrugged, which is unfortunately, you know, not not what libertarian movement probably needs to be known for as um, as far as culture and the arts go, because it, it is very easy to mock um, if you're just um, talking about the novel from uh, for artistic merits. So, what do you think about that? Well, uh, actually, the the description, or in, shall we call it interpretation, of Borges's works that uh, I've talked about here today, it, it's very rare. I mean, you can Google it, you will never find an interpretation like that of Borges in, in most places, because the thing that in, in Latin America, it, there, I remember this uh, story from The Economist where they quoted um, a classical liberal from Brazil who uh, lived in London and he was in Brazil in the 70s, Roberto Campos. And Roberto Campos says, to be a classical liberal in a country like Brazil with such cultural dirigism is almost akin to being naked in public. So what you have, and I'm bringing this uh, into the answer, because what you have is people like Vargas Llosa or like Borges or like, or like Octavio Paz, who in the cultural sphere, even the left cannot deny their talent. I mean, their singular talent, and they can't deny it. So what they tried to do in the case of Vargas Llosa is they tried to say that his works prior to him becoming a liberal were better. And you will, you will hear these opinions a lot. And then on the, in the case of uh, Octavio Paz, they will, uh, they will constantly remind that, that he worked for the PRI while, while he was a diplomat, though he was critic of other dictatorships. And, and in the case of uh, Borges, uh, it, it, I, I, don't, I had never heard this interpretation of Borges until I read Alejandra Salinas's paper, Legatum's uh, essay by, by this professor from Marroquin or, or uh, Martin Krause's interpretation of, of different works of Borges. Because he was very shy, uh, uh, very reserved when it came to talking about uh, current issues, current affairs, and, and so most people just don't talk about it. I was surprised you did not mention the more recent developments in Chile uh, under the first the Pinochet uh, administration uh, with the Chicago boys, as they were called. Uh, was there any leaders in that that were local Chilean and deserve mentioned in your presentation? Yeah, no, uh, I mean, um, uh, there are there are many, like Hernan Bihi, uh, and, and there's also Jose Piñera, who's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Uh, and and I, I didn't mention it, not because I have, I don't think they 
qualifier or anything. It's just because I, I promised myself I was going to speak for 30 minutes. <laughs> and, and it's hard, you know, it's, it's very dangerous to give somebody for Latin America a microphone. It's very hard for us to step away. <laughs> and so it, it's a matter of choosing. And also I tried to distribute them across time because my purpose with the presentation was to try to start at the independence of the Spanish colonies and to finish in the present. So I tried to pick someone and, and there are some countries that are very representative of the region because they're very important, like Brazil or Mexico. So I had to have, I, I thought it was, uh, I, I had to include somebody from those countries. And I guess that's why. But. Yes, I have two questions. They're unrelated, but they're easy, I think. Uh, the first question is, uh, you had mentioned the difficulty in promoting liberalism is in order to do so, you had to link it uh, to American historical figures, and that didn't, that wasn't good PR. My question is, why don't the ideas stand on their own without the need to attribution? Just, the, here's an idea, it doesn't matter where it came from, just judge the idea on the merits. That's my first question. The second question is... Very good question. It's, it's so easy, it, it was so easy for you to mention almost with a shrug, well, that company went into, that country went into a dictatorship for a couple of years, and that country was a dictator for 10 years, and then it was not. Being, living in a dictatorship, to me, is a pretty big deal. And what is there about the collective Latin American psyche that where the voting public is so relatively comfortable with allowing dictatorships to move in and out of government? Mo I, I mean, you can almost have a college course on re replying to the second question, and, and I'm going to try and respond that with my presentation on Thursday, because that's sort of the topic that I have on Thursday. But uh, re with regards to the first question, uh, you can, uh, I mean, you might not see this in the U.S., but we saw this in Latin America. There's a lot of historical manipulation of figures such as Simon Bolivar for political purposes today. And it works because, as I will explain on Thursday in more detail, there's a very uh, strong uh, tendency in Latin America to look for redeemers. Uh, there's a very good book that I recommend by a Mexican historian, Enrique Krause, called Redeemers. And basically, there is a tendency inherited from the time of the colonies uh, that since the military and the church are institutions that sort of supplanted the authority of the state because the state was historically so weak, uh, these institutions became so strong that they were heavily influential and all this led to uh, what is called caudillismo, the, the eternal search for the guy that's going to come put things in order. Or women, you know, they have a woman today in Argentina. But uh, it's the, the eternal search for someone that will concentrate enough power to fix everything. And, and you have that in Latin ingrained in Latin American culture, and it's something that leads to uh, collectivism, and it's, it's something dangerous that's part of our culture, and we cannot deny it. And once you recognize that that is ingrained in our culture, then you realize that the way to connect with people is rescuing the heritage of people that promoted different ideas and different ways of doing things in our, in our territory. It's not because I think that ideas cannot stand on their own. It's a matter of 
good PR, like you said. It's a matter of recognizing the way people think and the way connect the way people Latin Americans connect with ideas is is most of the times linked to someone. Okay. Uh, hello. Thank you. Um, uh, I'm over here. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Gabriela, for a very thought-provoking lecture. I want to um, delve a little bit more into your example of Borges. Um, you basically made two points about his contribution to classic liberalism. The first was his um, kind of systematic uh, questioning of the state, which I totally agree with. But your second was his contribution to the virtue of, of individualism. Um, but you know, in my learning, I, I basically learned about two story, short stories, Borges y yo, where um, he basically um, doesn't have, he doesn't know whether he has one, one identity or two. And the same, um, is, the same theme is basically shown in El Sur, where um, you know, he's traveling. He doesn't know whether he's traveling throughout the countryside or still stuck in the hospital. And so if I think about the fundamentals of individualism, I think about, first and foremost, the integrity of man's mind. So if um, Borges has works that are inherent, uh, you know, very strongly questioning that, would you still say that he is a, a proponent of individualism? Well, I mean, it, I'm sure you can find, he wrote so many short stories, and, and I mean, I'm sure you can find things uh, that uh, would look like he's not uh, defending uh, the integrity of the individual. But what I find interesting, and you, and I can, uh, I mean, you can look at the, the, the sources that Martin Krause and Alejandra Salinas has, is that the most predominant references to the individual are as a entity with capacity to act freely. And so uh, if you find more occurrences of that portrayal of the individual, I think it is fair to say that he did believe in a very strong individualism. And, and I find it particularly interesting in the Latin American context, somebody that publicly questions the notion of the people, which translates as el pueblo. You know, most uh, Latin American intellectuals think that uh, like the voice of the people is like the voice of God, you know the saying? And, and so I find it very uh, interesting that he was very insistent on that. And that also reflects an, uh, uh, an appreciation of the individual above the mass. I, I think it, it is uh, very much present in many of his works, but then again, I'm not. I don't know about the works you just quoted. I haven't read those, so I wouldn't be able to really compare it. it, it I mean, I'm just quoting from the studies that I mentioned. Hi, I, I here, here at your right. Oh, okay, here. <laughs> Further right. <laughs> I, I I would like to ask you, what do you think is the relationship between the our current underdevelopment and pro-socialist inclination in the conglomerate of Latin American nations and the initial influence of the Spanish cultural and legal like tradition. Yeah, this is also part of what I'm going to say on Thursday, but this is a preview. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, I, I, I think that um, the reason, ha there are many reasons. Uh, and and it, I don't have I don't share uh, many of the fatalist or the determinist interpretations that kind of say oh because we were colonized by the Spanish and not by the English we're doomed I, I don't 
share that uh, kind of uh, prescription. I, I do think uh, Argentina provides an example of, of, of how uh, a country was able for um, more than 50 years to break the mold and, and to uh, step away from that legacy in a very significant way. Argentina also shows how you can destroy a lot <laughs> in a fairly short amount of time, which happened after, uh, I mean, the decisive moment was when Perón came to power for the first time, right? But um, uh, I, I think the tendency comes from uh, basically having uh, been colonized by a monarchy that had short-term interests as opposed to uh, long-term interest. And uh, it was a monarchy that was in fiscal problems at home, and so they wanted, they treated the colonies as a cow that needed to be milked as fast as possible, regardless of the well-being of the cow after being milked. And so uh, it, that's the way they, uh, the, they came, the, the colonizers came to um, South America. And also, the movement for independence the part of the myth, and this Carlos Rangel talks about this in his book, is that uh, the leaders of independence, uh, they kind of like liberated Latin Americans. But in reality, what the battles for independence were, were uh, power struggles between the elites. There were factions in each country. The elites were divided. And it was basically a, a power struggle to take over the, the loot you know, the, the, the administration over from the other guy. It wasn't uh, so much inspired on the ideas of, of liberty at the time of independence. In fact, in Ecuador, for example, we celebrate the Day of Independence, uh, the 24th of May, and if you look at the Declaration of Independence, it swears allegiance to Fernand VII, Fernando VII. So you, you do a, a Google search quickly and you won't find the word independence there because it wasn't really independence, it was just, changing the guy that was running things by another guy that was running things, and they were gonna still uh, you know, pay tribute to the Spanish crown. So uh, I think that's what happened. It's that they just replaced the reign of the Spanish crown with uh, the reign of a local caudillo, and the caudillo copied uh, something uh, very similar to the US Constitution, but kept all the laws of less hierarchy that were inherited from the colonies. So you had uh, classical liberal constitutions coexisting with uh, very protectionist, nationalist, commercial laws, and all types of regulations inherited from the Spanish crown. Um, I had a question. Um, considering that property, hi, Gabriella, I'm right here in the center. Oh, okay. Um, considering that the property rights are fundamental to all liberty and prosperity, and um, that the at least the western coast of South, the west side of South America, with the Inca tradition, was purely command and control collectivist, you have at present in Peru you have a, um, a school of thought with Hernando de Soto and his compatriots supporting property rights. In Ecuador, my understanding is that they have actually granted nature the uh, legal rights in the Constitution of Ecuador, which is inimical to property rights. What do you see the future of um, private property rights in uh, that region? There's something in Latin America we call realismo magico, which means uh, magical realism. And you can see that a lot of the times in real life and sometimes real life 
feels like fiction. So what you, what you mentioned about the Ecuadorian uh, rights of nature, uh, what it is is that our constitution, supposedly the most uh, advanced in the world according to our government, uh, has given rights to things like trees. So things that have don't have the ability to talk <laughs> or do something, they have they are subjects of rights, and uh, it doesn't explain how is a tree supposed to uh, demand that its rights be respected. Uh, so that's an example of magical realism <laughs> because it's hard to believe that that actually made it into the constitution, but it did. Uh, the, the problem with uh, property rights in uh, most of Latin America and particularly in countries like Peru and, and Ecuador is that uh, we inherited uh, the tradition, the Spanish tradition that whatever is under the earth is property of the state. So by default, most uh, whatever oil or mineral wealth is found beneath uh, someone's private property is property of the state, not of whoever found it. So if you're a Native American and, and you are born in Alaska or somewhere in the US and you find oil underneath uh, your territory, you are rich or you might be you're potentially rich. But if you're an, a, you're an indigenous uh, living in the Amazon in Ecuador or the jungle in Peru, then you're one of the most poor people in your country. And the government decides for you what happens, how is that exploited, what company gets to exploit it, uh, what the revenue is used for. And so these people become very violent because what it is, it's legalized theft of wealth that might otherwise be theirs. Thank you very much, Gabriela. I, I actually learned a number of important things from that. Uh, the first thing was the role of culture and art in Latin American politics, music and poetry, to think that the politicians were fighting over a loot. That's beautiful. Uh, and then the second, of course, is to learn that in Ecuador, trees have legal standing uh, as well. Uh, thank you very much. You're in for a real treat when she's going to dig into the politics of populism in Latin America. This is a very important topic, and it deserves uh, the kind of scholarship that Gabriela brings to it. Before we depart for the buses, uh, someone has left a yellow notebook. If you are missing a yellow notebook, uh, they have it over here, so go on over and talk to my colleagues. With that, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of the evening.